0: Hello and welcome to Journalism Revision, Ipso Editor's Code. My name is Sani Rudravajala and this podcast is for anyone who's studying uh, for their NCTJ exams or if you're particularly interested in the Ipso Editor's Code. I'm currently doing the diploma as part of my MA studies at university of Salford Um, but I should mention now that this podcast isn't associated with Ipso or anyone else it's just another means for revision and if you're doing your exams I hope it helps you too. Today we're going to be looking at accuracy and um, well we might as well get going shall we? Clause one of the code is accuracy, goes to the heart of all good practice, as the guide points out, although it also says that 55% of all the complaints considered by Ipso are to do with clause one, uh, which they say isn't surprising if you think you're writing the first draft of history and it's hard to see through the fog of breaking news, but it's no excuse for reckless or sloppy journalism. So what I'm going to do is going to read out the code and then for each one, give some examples. So point one, the press must take care not to publish inaccurate, misleading or distorted information or images, including headlines not supported by the text. Two, a significant inaccuracy, misleading statement or distortion must be corrected promptly and with due prominence. And where appropriate, an apology published. In cases involving Ipso, due prominence should be required by the regulator. Point three, a fair opportunity to reply to significant inaccuracies should be given, when reasonably called for. Point four, the press, while free to editorialise and campaign, must distinguish clearly between comment, conjecture and fact. Point five, a publication must report fairly and accurately the outcome of an action for defamation to which it has been a party, unless an agreed settlement states otherwise or an agreed statement is published. So point one, which is about not publishing inaccurate, misleading, or distorted information or images, includes headlines that do not support the text. And a really good example of this was a breach from The Sun on the 8th of March 2016. And it was a front page headline, massive letters, Queen Backs Brexit, uh, with a big picture of the Queen as well. Now, Ipso ruled that the article itself didn't breach the standards, but the headline did uh, because it made it look like it was facts. It made it look like the Queen actually was all for Brexit when really the Queen is apolitical. And uh, Ipso themselves said it looked like it was a factual assertion uh, and there was nothing in the headline or manner that it was presented to suggest that it was conjecture, hyperbole or not to be read literally. Now, The Sun themselves said that uh, they have a history of making exaggerated headlines, but um, Ipso disagreed and they had to publish a correction. And the correction was published on page two. Um, hacked off the campaign group uh, that campaigns for uh, greater press standards. Complained as well saying it, it was buried on page two and didn't have a due prominence. And we'll talk about due prominence a bit more. Uh, but yeah, the Queen um, didn't back Brexit, didn't not back Brexit because the Queen uh, doesn't have an opinion when it comes to political stuff. So um, the palace complained and it was upheld by Ipso. Point two... Uh, that a significant inaccuracy must be promptly corrected with due prominence. So um, an example of this was um, a headline, and it was about um, Paul McKenna, the hypnotist and TV star. And it was McKenna's Brahms and Hypnotist, which I I still don't really get, but that was the headline. Um, And on the online version, it said that plus... Telestar refused alcohol on BA flight and that was in The Sun uh, published on the 1st of January 2016 and it reported that Paul McKenna got drunk on a flight from the Bahamas uh, and was refused alcohol spilt a drink over another passenger and made a flight flight attendant cry uh, and that he then apologised for his actions uh, but it wasn't true he'd actually had food poisoning uh, and he didn't upset anyone um, and he spilt his drink because he was a bit unsteady on his feet um, an apology was published by The Sun on page two in their apologies column. Um, they offered to put it in February, which was also important when the ruling was made because um, it meant that they were seen to have done something about it promptly um, and the apology itself was deemed sufficient. So those two examples then feed into the next uh, two points of the code about being a fair opportunity uh, to reply to significant inaccuracy. So that, an example there was how McKenna then was able to Um, raises complaint and it was dealt with and being free to editorialize part of four uh, but must be clear in distinguishing between comment conjecture and facts well the queen backs brexit would be an example where um, it wasn't clear that it was conjecture so point five is about publishing the outcome of any defamation action and it's not a huge number of examples of this but one is andy miller Um, from an article that was published uh, in the Daily Mail in 2008. He took the mail to court and he successfully won £65,000 for defamation. So the mail reported that on page two in 2012, but they also appealed the defamation action, um, which they then lost the appeal for that. So they then published the outcome of that um, action on page 41 in 2014 so twice there they published the outcome of defamation actions as it happened they actually went to the supreme court and um that didn't even get to trial or anything it was rejected before they'd even managed to to get a hearing because uh, they said you know they refused permission essentially um and miller actually complained that um they should have published um the results of that as well but it's a rule that because Effectively, nothing had actually happened. Um, They'd already covered themselves the first two times, um, and that was the end of the matter. So another practical application of clause one is that it covers tweets. And this came to bear when um, a complaint was raised at the Mail Online, and a tweet they had put out which said, Driver deliberately mows down pedestrians. And it related to a crash outside the Natural History Museum, Um, but subsequent reports removed the word deliberately, and that was after police said it wasn't a terror-related matter. Now, the subsequent report was published at 6.37, but at 6.43, a tweet went out that still included the word deliberately. And so this was where the complaint was uh, put. Um, And it turned out the social media team hadn't been updated until three hours later. Um, But in the ruling, he said that the article had no significant inaccuracy and it was timely corrected when more information was given uh, because at the time it was a breaking news story. Um, And the delay in the tweet wasn't like a large enough delay to cause a breach and it was natural it was it was normal practice for the mail to um, kind of update the stories for social media on like a cycle so um, there was no breach there but it was really interesting to see that actually that tweets from the uh, publications do count on the ipso editors code So I've just got a bit of late news to add when it comes to examples of Clause 1 breaches on accuracy. This one was announced on the 14th of January 2021 and it relates to an article in the Telegraph.co.uk from the 11th of July 2020. It's a comment piece from Toby Young and the headline was When we have had herd immunity, Boris will face a reckoning on this pointless and damaging lockdown. The article itself had a number of claims. I'm going to have a look at those and see uh, why this was classed as a breach. So first off, the article claimed that people will have a natural immunity because they fought off other coronaviruses like the common cold and that people in this category would be immune. So on this particular point, it gets a little bit tricky, but only 20% of cold viruses are coronaviruses. So that isn't particularly uh, accurate. However, um, the way it was said implied that it was some cold viruses are coronaviruses. So on that particular point, there was no breach upheld. However, this all feeds into the next part of the argument. So Jung referred to some data in a study in New York in a neighbourhood, confusingly enough, called Corona. Now, in that study... Uh, 68% of the people they tested had COVID antibodies. So therefore, it could be argued that they are close to herd immunity. Now, that argument does make sense. However, it then linked that idea to a study in London that found that something similar, uh, where he tested people, found 17% of people had COVID antibodies. And he then said that they were, quote, probably approaching herd immunity. He went on to say that the British population will soon achieve herd immunity just as the population of corona has, and the lockdown has done nothing to mitigate the impact of the virus. It went on to conclude that this is good news. It means a second wave of COVID-19 is unlikely and we can dispense with pointless social distancing measures. Now, to get into the heart of this argument, we need to have a little idea about what the Telegraph then said in their defense. So with this idea that if you got the cold, you could then be immune to um, coronavirus, they referred in their argument to something called a cross-reactive T-cell. So basically, T-cells are your white blood cells that help you with immunity. A cross-reactive T-cell could be one that uh, could then take what it's learned from a cold virus and help defend you against coronavirus. However, even there, it's not actually that they can make you immune. It's just it can lessen the impact of um, coronavirus. As it happens, there's no reference to these cross-referenced T-cells in the article at all. And when it comes to this 17% um, in this case in London, and then it leading on to herd immunity the complainant provided an article from the lancet medical journal that pulled together studies based in the uk saying that herd immunity needs close to 60 or 70 percent in order to reach that number Um, there was no evidence in young's piece that this scenario existed in the uk or london the newspaper said that it was clearly conjecture And they also referred to an article on a website called lockdownskeptics.org to defend it. Now that website is itself a daily blog that Young edits, so it wasn't exactly the strongest argument. Overall, Ipso said that this piece was significantly misleading. They also noted that no correction had been offered and it misrepresented the nature of immunity. The committee considered that the article contained multiple breaches on clause one on a topic of public importance. It did, however, note that there were some disputed claims on areas of significant scientific uncertainty at the time of publication. And that's something to note, like we know now uh, what actually played out, but the ruling and the article goes back to the circumstances surrounding its publication at the time. In light of all this, the committee concluded that a correction was an appropriate remedy. So the correction itself was published as a standalone correction in the online corrections and clarifications column. So I just thought this was a really good example of where something that's been published is inaccurate can kind of play into something of huge public importance and significance. Um, and Ipso, therefore, did not take kindly to this breach on something that affects us all. So that concludes everything that we're going to look at in Clause 1. Um, on here, but one thing to note is that there is no public interest justification in breaching the clause on accuracy, which makes sense when you think about it. Um, I'm going to try and do the rest of these as quick as I can. Um, and if you're listening in 2022, um, then congratulations, you've survived lockdown because currently I'm in the bedroom next to a boiler that keeps going off. I hope it's not interrupted you too much. Anyway, Journalism Revision Ipso Editor's Code was produced and presented by me, Sani Rudravadula. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Saniar1985 and if you found this useful or interesting um, then don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five star review and something nice uh, that you put in the comment and it might even help me get a job who knows And um, if you want any further information of course then um, go on Ipsos website and you can find the guidebook you can find the code itself Ipso themselves had a podcast the uh, last episode they did came out um, in January 2020 but uh, that's really interesting so you can give that a listen and it's got some really good guests on there um, that kind of flesh a few stories out as well And I'd also recommend uh, The Corrections, which is a Radio 4 uh, series, and you can get that on BBC Sounds, and it kind of delves into a few news stories and goes behind the headlines and finds out some inaccurate headlines and what happened about those ones. So that's really interesting too. Anyway, uh, I think my tea's been ready for a while, so I better get going, but I'll see you very soon.